Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Isn't that awesome? Thanks to Fabian so much for uh, being a part of that. He goes to the 930 service, but perhaps you'll get a chance to meet him. And yes, I'm changing uh, professions. I'm going to apprentice myself as a stonemason. Uh, because, uh, you know, it looks easier than being a pastor, but actually it's really hard, complicated. These skilled people, these stonemasons, like Joseph and Jesus, very likely stonemasons. Now, for those of you who are uh, Washington aficionados, and that's a number of you, there are a number of people here who love the history of D.C. I've had tours from various people here. If you guys ever get a chance and you want to do it, I can tell you about somebody in our church who will take you on a dynamite nighttime tour of the city that you'll never forget. Uh, But you're always telling me interesting facts, so somebody is bound to get this, though I'm going to tell you no one did in the 930 service. So in Washington, D.C., what happened on October 13, 1792? Does anybody know? No one knows. No one knows what happened on October 13, 1792. That would be the day that George Washington himself laid into place the cornerstone of what we now call the White House. Pretty amazing uh, story, actually. Now, you know, it was a really important day because in ancient buildings, the cornerstone was much more important than it is in our buildings today. Now, a cornerstone today still matters, but you'd be hard-pressed to figure out where the cornerstone to your house is unless you built your own home. And even then, it was probably a pre-made block of some sort, concrete block or a concrete foundation piece, or, or it was a, a, a cinder block, something like that. And it really didn't make any difference if it were laid better than the others. They all had to be laid. The way you build a modern uh, facility is very different than the way you build an ancient facility or facilities that are built today like ancient techniques. So if you go uh, to New York City, you go to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, it's built with ancient techniques. If you go here Uh, to the cathedral that's in D.C. It was built with ancient techniques, and there the cornerstone really matters. So every single cornerstone that was laid in Washington, D.C., for a major facility like the Capitol or the executive mansion that became known as the White House, every last one of them was laid by George Washington or some other official and the architect of the city. And you do know this one, right? Who's the architect of the city? Pierre-Charles Lafont, Lafont Plaza named after him. So Lafont was present on that particular day, October 13, 1792. And so was a man named James Hoban. James Hoban was an Irish immigrant who happened to be the architect of the building of the White House itself, or back then the executive mansion. Big ceremony. It was a ceremony conducted by Freemasons. Now let me hasten to say, This series has zero to do with Freemasonry. No, several of you have asked. I thought it was curious. I'm not a Freemason. I have zero interest in secret societies, though I will tell you my Baptist pastor grandfather was a Freemason for most of his life. And you can see when I'm talking about Masonry where these Renaissance ideas came from, this way of schooling, this way of passing down information from generation to generation, this way of championing certain things. This is the ideas that they were attempting to 
capture. So I know that some of you are interested in this, and if you are, more power to you. Not my thing, don't ask. But I am really intrigued by Jesus as a stonemason and by stonemasonry. So on that day, that great ceremony was held, and that block was laid. George Washington himself would never live in what came to be known as the White House. Every other president has. John Adams was in the White House when it became known as the White House, but it was a really important building to Washington. Everything that it symbolized to George Washington and to the city of D.C., So the cornerstone is laid, and it becomes the source of tremendous intrigue. Do you guys know this story? If you don't, you might want to watch a little history channel. I just happened to be watching recently, and this is the episode that was on. No one knows to this day where that cornerstone is. Now, it's possible that it's in the building somewhere. Supposedly, it holds some really dark secret, so you might want to find it. If anyone ever finds it, it's worth a fortune, obviously. Maybe it's there, but some architects think that is unlikely. And the reason they think that is unlikely is because, as you'll remember, we had a little war, a little skirmish after the building of the White House. That's when a painting, (coughs) excuse me, was famously saved. And after that, the White House was rebuilt and the cornerstone was not discovered. Moreover, would, uh, moreover, later Wilson oversaw a major renovation of the White House. There was a huge search that was conducted to find the cornerstone, and no one could find it. So to this day, there is all sorts of mystery about this. Was it spirited away in the middle of the night to hide secrets about the city of Washington, D.C. and the founding of the nation? Who knows? Is it there somewhere and no one's found it yet? Who knows? But in some way, shape, or form, no, we cannot find the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was really important. Lafont, the architect of the city, would have been there to lay every single one of those cornerstones in place. All kinds of stonemasons worked on these stones, but all of them were the master masons of the construction of the city, and that would have been true in every ancient building. Jesus knew something about laying cornerstones. If I am right, and I'm not the only one who thinks so, and Jesus worked on the major facilities of Herod Antipas at Sepphoris, then he and his father may well have participated in the laying of the cornerstones of the major buildings in that particular Roman city. And maybe Jesus had that in mind when he said this, his last visit to the temple. The Pharisees were pressing him on all sides. They were questioning his authority They were trying to say that what he was doing was somehow sacrilegious. They were in every way accusing him, and this is what would lead to the cross. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eyes. Now, I will have to confess that Jesus didn't need to be a cornerstone to know this particular expression. It wasn't necessary for him to have seen one laid or participating in the laying of one. He didn't need to know its function in the building, though I think he did. Again, Jesus never spoke about wood and carpentry. He spoke spoke about stone and stone masonry and building with stone all the time. This is one of the occasions. But Jesus wouldn't have had to have that expertise 
because he's quoting Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. But Jesus is applying this scripture to himself. He's saying that this scripture is prophecy about something that is happening. Something that is occurring in his presence on earth, the Father having sent the Word, the Son, and his being incarnate, something new is occurring, and Jesus takes this scripture and speaks of it, uh, speaks of what he's doing in that vein. Now let's think about cornerstones for a second before we move forward. In ancient buildings, cornerstones, as Fabian said, were incredibly important. At the Cathedral of Tours, the cornerstone incredibly important. Well, uh, Fabian was telling me a story about participating in the rebuilding of a face of the cornerstone and how every time you placed a stone, you went back to the coordinates of the cornerstone to check and make sure that everything was plumb and true. So in ancient buildings, the first stone laid in the construction of any building was the cornerstone. The first thing you did, the most important thing you did, it had bearing on all the rest of the construction. It was really important that it be done correctly. And the great architect, the big head of any project in the city, would be present, just as in Washington, with the laying of that stone. Now, that's not true anymore. Most cornerstones today are the last stones laid. There's a niche that is left, and the cornerstone is purely symbolic. If you walk down the hall here after the worship service and you look in front of what is the chapel, uh, you will see a glass box, and inside that glass box are a couple of things, a piece of rock exactly like the one that Fabian was carving on. You'll learn about that on Christmas Day. And you'll also see a, a, a box, a metal box, and then some other things that were in the metal box, and you'll see the cornerstone of the original building on this site of Columbia Baptist Church. It's kind of interesting, but that would have been laid last, purely symbolic. In the ancient building, it happened first. Now, by Jesus saying that he is the cornerstone, he is saying that a new building is being constructed. That's significant because he was making a statement that was threatening to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the nationalists of their day. Their whole interest was in Israel. Their entire interest was in their power within that structure and their own wealth. They were wed to the government of Rome in a really significant way. It was a a bastardized faith at that point of time. And, And Jesus was saying, what I'm doing is a new thing. A new building is being constructed on the foundation of the old. Or a new building is being constructed on the site of the old. You can understand why these religious leaders were threatened by him. But for us, this is important, significant, because what Jesus was building is what we now occupy. This spiritual house that he was building would be a new way of thinking religiously, and that way would have to do with a heart to heart connection between God and his people, a new way of worshiping and praising and honoring and glorifying God that is what the old way should have been. Secondly, every cornerstone is the reference for every other stone that is laid in the building. So again, as Fabian said, we check the cornerstone before we lay any other stone. Now, those of us who are followers of Jesus 
whole life disciples. Those of us who claim him as our Lord and Savior, we understand what it is to make him the cornerstone of our lives, don't we? Because everything we do, we measure by him. When we lay down a new piece in our lives, whether it's a career or occupation choice or who we marry or how we raise a family or who our friends are, whatever we do in life, we measure it by the cornerstone that is Jesus, and that affects the building of the entire thing. And for a lot of us, when we accepted Christ, that was, in fact, a very new building. When I finally saw the light, as it were, when I could finally see what the death and resurrection of Jesus meant, when I finally had the Holy Spirit touch my heart in a powerful way as a freshman in college, it reoriented my whole life. But to tell you the truth, I've had to go back and measure again and again and again. Lots of mistakes between that time and now. But it changed the entire orientation of what was being built in my life. And sometimes I wonder, how is that possible? I don't know about you. Your situation may be different, but I was reared in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. I was reared in a church. I don't really remember a time I didn't know Jesus. I can't remember a time where I didn't know Scripture. I can't remember a time where I didn't know God's people in some way, though I walked as far away from the church as I possibly could for a period of my life and as far away from God. I was baptized when I was 10 years old. My grandfather was preaching when I accepted Christ. My father baptized me. You would think that you could look back and see with unbroken pattern just a movement up with Jesus from my childhood on, a constant upward trajectory. But that's not what my discipleship journey looks like. Instead, it looks a million ways and a million steps away from that road for a period of my life. And the good news always is, no matter how many steps off the narrow way of Jesus we are, it could be 10 million, and we're still only one step from being right back on it. And that one step is obedience. As a freshman in college, there was a rock in the middle of my path that had to be dealt with, and I had to decide who is Jesus for me. And that laid a new cornerstone, a new building. And I'm constantly measuring that rock to figure out if I'm still moving in the direction that God would have me to go. Thirdly, the cornerstone actually orients the building in a specific direction. Eugene Peterson has become famous for a saying in a sermon that became a book. And he talks about a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. I love that expression because that's what whole life discipleship is. It's a day-to-day -day hard journey. It's a long obedience in the same direction that hopefully produces greater and greater fruit as we mature in Christ and as we come to understand God's plan for our lives for our world and for eternity. But the cornerstone orients it all. We can't move in any direction different than the cornerstone points, and the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ points toward eternity, points us away from the things of this world that are so overemphasized, frankly, in this very holiday, and points us toward that which has eternal resonance and internal value. Fourthly, the cornerstone establishes the building's geographic location. Now, that seems a strange thing to say, 
But one of the reasons that LaFont was present at the laying of the cornerstone of the White House was so that the exact location he had chosen for the building, the precise location, that that's where the building would be built, very carefully, meticulously marked. And when Jesus came to reestablish a relationship between God and humanity, what he came to do was to locate the church of Jesus Christ and the people who made up that church in the very heart of God. In the new year, Chris and I are going to be preaching a sermon series together in January. We wanted to make sure as newly minted co-pastors that we preach together the first series. So the very first sermon and the last one we'll actually do as a tandem or a pair. And the whole thing plays off of the theme that we've set for the coming year. We've designated 2023 the year of prayer. I think it's incredibly important that Columbia (coughs) be deep in prayer as we build this new building so we don't misunderstand the church as the building. We understand what God is really doing, who He's really reaching out for. But what we're trying to say is that God establishes with us a heart-to-heart connection and that prayer is more a creation of that connection than it is some set of words that we speak or some poem that we write or anything else. We have to get to the point that we are located in the very heart of God, that what breaks God's heart breaks our hearts, and that what thrills God, what brings passion, if you will, becomes our passion, becomes our truth. (coughs) Excuse me, we hosted the staff party the other night, and I'm talked out. So please understand what it means for us as a church to have our hearts broken by the things that breaks God. Surely it breaks God's heart that people are lost all around us all the time. They don't know Christ. They don't know His righteousness. They don't know His justice. They don't know His truth. And that's got to break Columbia's heart. It doesn't matter what building we build if we don't reach people with the power of the cross and the empty tomb. Amen? And that means every living stone has to be located in the very heart of God. Jesus, the cornerstone, locates us there. And what is God passionate about? He's passionate about peace. He's passionate about justice. He's passionate about love. These are the things we have to become impassioned by (coughs) or no building that we build will make any difference at all. Fifthly, its dimensions have to be incredibly precise. Good thing we know Jesus. Good thing we have the Scripture. Sixth, it's always laid by the architect every single time. Now, this is interesting because a couple of you have been smart. The first week, I told you that the Bible tells us not that Jesus was a carpenter. There's a specific Greek word for that, but that Jesus was a tecton. You know that word now, right? And tecton means builder or craftsman. What we have to do is look at the context in which Jesus lived. We have to see the place in which he grew up and the place in which he ministered. We have to understand what was happening around him at that point of time to figure what kind of builder was he. Pretty simple because everything that was built was built of rock or stone. Somebody asked me, this is funny, actually in this service they came up afterwards and said, but but they did make their dining tables out of wood, right? I thought that was funny. No, they ate on the floor. They didn't have dining tables. Didn't even have a dining room. That's not how houses were constructed there. 
So you saw this word tecton, and someone came to me and says, you know, that reminds me of the word architect. And I said, do tell. In Greek, arch tecton means what? The super or over tecton of the whole project. So the architect always lays the cornerstone. Now, Peter would remember this years later, Rocky, remember, from last week. And Rocky would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, in the Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, that cornerstone being Jesus, will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. It's intriguing because this is the first sermon Peter ever preached. Peter was smart enough <coughs> to take his sermon series and turn it into a book. I got to do that too. And first, Peter repeats to us the first sermon he ever preached. This is in Acts chapter 4. Is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And Jesus is, what? The stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. His first sermon. I bet almost any pastor can tell you, if they can remember anything, the first sermon they ever preached. Are you curious about the first sermon I ever preached? Because let me tell you what it was. You heard it last week. My first sermon ever was a rock in the middle of the road. Last Sunday, I remembered the first sermon I ever preached. It was based on one I'd heard, I think, my father preach or something, but it was my own thing about my spiritual journey and how God had been working in my life and how that rock in the middle of the road like at Caesarea Philippi had become for me a new understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, made the difference. He became the cornerstone of my life. <clears throat> but let me tell you how I got into preaching the first sermon I ever preached. So I told you that in college I had this impactful moment, this moment where I looked at my life and said, this is not what I want to build. This is not what I want to have. It's a long story, but I felt I was in a deep dungeon. I was in a well and that nothing I was doing had any worth or value, that everything I was building toward was worthless. A friend of mine testified to me from the Gospel of John and told me that what I was looking for is something I'd known all along. And it was hard for me, I was proud, to admit that what I had heard in childhood actually was the answer, but that I'd looked for it in the wrong place. I had a moment of spiritual conversion like unto what many of you have experienced and like I've never again had quite like that, an awakening where the Holy Spirit was moving in my heart and in my life and I was being drawn into the heart of God, drawn to the love of God. I, I for the first time, realized I could be loved and I could love. I could trust and I could be trusted. It was a really powerful moment. So I did something I hadn't done to that point. I went to a Christian organization on my campus. Now, you need to understand I'd been invited to this place any number of times. I just didn't want to go. In fact, I'd send to a friend of, my of mine, like a lot of people say about churches these days, you won't catch me dead in that place. I will never, ever go there. There's no chance I'll ever show up. 
just recognize that when people say that, they don't really know what they're saying. And when I came to my senses, when I understood like the prodigal son that I was being welcomed back home, I said, you know, the group of friends that I have is building on something that's not of value to me. I think I better find some other friends, some support, the people that, that I can understand and who can understand me. So on a Thursday night in the new semester, I walked into, for the very first time, I walked into the room of this Christian organization. I was a little nervous. First of all, I was on crutches. I'd torn some ligaments in my ankle playing racquetball, which I still play. I, I was kind of awkward, and I was walking into that room, but the, the most wonderful, sweet, kind, gorgeous woman greeted me at the door. As it turned out, she was the chair of the welcome committee for this Christian organization. And she reached a hand out to me, and she said, Hi, I'm Debbie Aker. What's your name? I was stunned. Absolutely stunned. The rest of the meeting, I don't remember what anybody said. I don't remember what anybody did. I looked at her the entire night. After the thing was over, I went back to the person who had invited me, a guy named Mac, who's a friend of ours. He said, hey, come over to the dorm room. A bunch of guys, we always hang out after this meeting. And I asked, who is that girl, Debbie? And they said, oh, you don't need to worry about her. She's dating another guy named Steve. And I said, that's irrelevant. I'm going to date her. Now, you can see I'm a prophet because not only did I date her, but three and a half years later, I married her, and she's still my wife. Now, that's only a piece of the story because after that, I started looking for opportunities to spend some time with her. We actually did get to be really good friends before we dated. And an opportunity came the very next week. I went back to this Christian organization and they said, hey, listen, we're looking for people next weekend to go to Mineral, Virginia, of all places, and to preach. We used to take these teams of people around the churches. Some of you did this. And we'd go and we'd preach and we'd lead music and we'd work with students and we'd do like a little revivaly kind of a thing. And they said, we've been able to find everything but what? Now, you know what people's greatest fear is, right? The number one fear people have is speaking in public. So they said, We've been able to find everything but the preacher. And Mac, this same guy, turned to me and he said, you could do that, Jim. Why don't you go and be the preacher? And I go, nah, I'm not going. I can't do that. And then they gave the list of the people who were going. And on that list was Debbie Aker. And I went, I'm in. I can preach. <laughs> my plan, of course, you can accomplish a lot in a weekend. And my plan was to be able to achieve proximity and to get to know this person better. So the day comes, I'm all excited. It's a Friday afternoon, I go to the pickup point to get on the old rickety van that this organization owned, and I step onto the van and I look around and I wait and I wait and the doors close and the engine starts and there's one person missing from that van. And I ask the person who's driving, hey, wait a second, where's Debbie Aker? And they said, oh, she had to cancel. She's got a big exam or something next week. She had to cancel. So Sharon came instead. And for a second, I thought, how can I get off this van? How can I get out of here? But it was too late. I was trapped. And so the van went off to Mineral, Virginia, and we led a team that weekend. And I was the preacher that weekend. And I preached a sermon called The Rock in the Middle of the Road. And I stood in that pulpit and preached. And I was scared to death. But somewhere in the middle of that sermon, 
it occurred to me, and it took me years to actually understand this fully, several years, but it occurred to me maybe this is part of God's plan for my life. God tricked me into that. Not really, I'm just playing. First sermon I ever preached. So what's Peter's first sermon he ever preached? Jesus is the cornerstone. And what meaning does that have to the man that was called Rocky when he confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God? What meaning does it have that that cornerstone is laid on that rock of paganism and that it is true and sure and that what is being built is a whole new world, a new heaven and a new earth? For Peter, it meant everything. He continues, But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And where does Peter get this? From the prophecies of Isaiah about the coming of a Messiah. This is a great sermon for you to see the thread through Scripture. The incredible connections across thousands and thousands of years. To see what God was doing from the beginning. Because Isaiah wrote in his prophecy, he will be a holy place. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Chapter 28 after chapter 8. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. <laughs> I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. I love that sentence. <clears throat> Think again. The cornerstone sets the direction, orientation for every other stone. I will make justice the measuring line, and righteousness, the plumb line. God is the tecton of the church, and Jesus is the cornerstone. God is the great architect of the church, and Jesus is the sure cornerstone that sets the direction and orients us in the heart of God. And this has been God's plan for thousands upon thousands of years. In fact, the Bible tells us from the very beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God was slain. And that's what this story is about. This stonemason Messiah is the cornerstone of a whole new way of being. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 5, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the building materials of the church, the living stones. Jesus is the perfect cornerstone, but every single stone must be shaped according to the shape, the direction, the orientation of the cornerstone, which is why, as I taught you last week, the stonemason chips away and chips away and chips away until the hardest part of the rock is exposed, until the face that can be part of the building that God is building 
is appropriately fashioned. And so God is shaping each one of us and every last one of us matter because once the cornerstone has been laid, every stone laid on top of it must be true to that cornerstone. But Peter continues. Now back to 1 Peter 2, 6-10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. Now, I've never thought of Peter as a Christmas story. Lots of things, but never a Christmas story. But being called out of darkness and into light actually reminds me of the way we speak about Christmas and the way John talks about Christmas. A light has come in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In fact, I think also of Luke 2, where we get the story of the shepherds. There were these shepherds living out in the fields nearby, Bethlehem. They were keeping watch over their flocks at night. It was dark. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The sky was lightened with this revelation. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, Peter concludes. Once you had not received mercy or favor, but now you have received mercy. Luke 2, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and proclaiming glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth to peace on those upon whom His mercy, same word, or favor rests. When I took the group to the Holy Land this year, I think one of their favorite places was Bethlehem, though it's been interesting. Preaching through this series, people keep coming to me and saying, man, it's such a blur. All the stuff we saw, and I'm just now putting the pieces together in my mind. But in Bethlehem, one of the things that we did, led by our young Eastern Orthodox guide who told me, you didn't know Jesus was a stonemason? We've all known that for a long time. Now you're finally catching up. Finally getting on. He took us through the caves. Do you, you who were there remember this? He said, we can't say this is the cave, but this is a cave like the one Jesus was born in. And, and this is a manger like the one he was laid in, a rock manger, a stone mason. Be here Christmas Eve, Luke 2, 12, and this manger will feature strongly. I can't give it away right now. So we walked through those caves in the front, out the back, all around, and all through Shepherd's Field, which is amazing right outside of Bethlehem. And people are murmuring and talking about, wow, this is incredible. Just think about this. It, it reorients you. It gives you a new understanding of this amazing story you've known all of your life. When you come out of that field, you walk into a little chapel. It's a church. It's called the Church of the Shepherds. And when you walk in the door, this is the picture you see of those shepherds out in the fields with the night sky bright with the presence of angels. 
The acoustics in this place are absolutely incredible. It's domed. It can make even the group of us who are there sound like good singers. And we gather around the altar in the middle, and the altar in the middle of the room is in the shape, I don't know if everybody saw it or not, in the shape of the stone manger. And around that altar we gathered and joined hands, and we sang, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And as I look around the room as we continue to sing the verses to this, there's not a dry eye in the room. People are weeping, tears streaming down their face. And for a moment, I had a thought because I've been there many times, and this was the most powerful visit to that particular place. And I thought, is it the sentimentality of Christmas that catches you here? And I said, no, that's not it. It's not that. Is it the reawakening of the story? Is it these new details? No, that's cool, but it's not that. What's so emotional about being here? It is that when you're there, you put the story together and you recognize that what was laid on that night in Bethlehem was the cornerstone of eternity, of a whole new world, a new heaven and a new earth, of the church, of our lives. And there is something powerful that happens when suddenly we recognize That night changed everything along with the teaching of Jesus, along with his death and his resurrection from another cave, a tomb, where the stone is rolled away and he lives and we live in him. There's something that happens when you see for the first time that this Jesus, this stonemason Messiah, is the rock of our salvation and the cornerstone of a whole new world. Can he be the cornerstone of your life? For the person who finds him in the middle of the road, he's a stumbling block. What keeps people from accepting this block that they trip over As a cornerstone, here's my experience. I've seen it over and over again. I've just been talking to a couple of people about following Jesus this last two weeks. And I've told them what I'm going to tell you now. Two obstacles. Number one, they do not understand they can truly be loved. They do not recognize that God created them worthy of His love. They do not know how much God loves them. And as a result of that, they do not believe others can love them either. And so often they are distant from other people, even if they have social connections and they work successfully or whatever. There's an inner loneliness that is there. And I said to one person a couple of weeks ago, listen, I've got to tell you, until you understand how much God loves you, until you know he loves you with an everlasting love, until you know you're the apple of his eye, until you know he created you to adore you, until you know you can be loved, Jesus is going to keep being a stumbling block for you and can never be the cornerstone. That's obstacle one. Obstacle two, they trust only themselves and no one else. 
The interesting thing is, once we truly trust Jesus, once we really trust God, we become aware that we can also trust other people and that we can be trusted. It changes everything about us. This is what John talks about in 1 John. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love reveals truth. It's love and it's trust. I said to a person this week, until you recognize that you're not the only person that you can trust, Jesus is going to continue to be for me the rock in the middle of the road, the stumbling block that can never truly be your cornerstone. Let me ask you if you are one of those persons who believes you can only trust yourself. How's that working out for you? Because everyone that I have ever known who trusted no one but themselves was miserable, absolutely miserable. And that's where I was. I didn't know I could truly be loved, and therefore I was incapable of truly loving. And I didn't really trust anybody but myself. When I ran into the rock in the middle of the road, and the stone rejected became for me the cornerstone. Are you ready? Understand, please, that that cornerstone will reorient everything in your life. Everything else will be built around it. But the good news is God has a plan for that building. And His plan is greater than anything you can even imagine for your life. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of a new world. He is the rock of our salvation. This stonemason Messiah is building a building called the church. And every stone is being placed in such a way as to call every man, woman, and child back to the heart of God. That's our Savior. That's Jesus. That's the light in the darkness. That's the baby born to an earthly father, stonemason, Heavenly Father, architect of the universe and the church, and mother, probably daughter of a stonemason, in a cave and laid in a stone manger. That's the one. He's the rock of our salvation, the cornerstone of a new world. Pray with me, would you? Father, it is amazing to see the thread through thousands of years of written Scripture and to understand the way it traces your hand of salvation right to the present day and to us and to the work of the Holy Spirit in this very moment to speak to someone's heart and mind and to say that you've laid a cornerstone for a new world and for their lives, that you can be and desire to be through your Son Jesus the rock of their salvation. Give us by the power of your Holy Spirit a capacity to love and be loved, to trust and to be trusted, to know our place in your eternal plan, and to recognize that you sent Jesus to be our light in the world's darkness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Lynn, we know you're watching. 
and we all want you to know that we love you and we're praying for you. Do you agree with me on that? So friends, I hope to see you this week and may God bless you. You remember that we are all new, all in, and all out. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. We'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.